everybody. I thank y'all again for being here. This is, you probably remember this, but this is our last in the series on eschatology, which comes at the end of our longer series on uh, Bible doctrine or systematic theology. And so we're going to be largely at the very end of your Bible. So if you can turn to the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, that's where we plan to be in particular today. Papa Fred, would you, uh, would you pray for us? I'd love to. And then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to open the Bible to uh, Revelation uh, chapters uh, 21 and, and 22. Um, everyone in the room has probably heard of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And we're in the consummation phase of your purposes in, in the gospel itself. And, and these are wonderful words. They're beautiful words. Um, when we think, even think about these words, it just seems not real or unreal. And yet you say they are real. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. We need your spirit. We need your help. We need your guidance uh, to explain how you're going to consume all your, that you've done in this process, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, we praise you, Lord. Uh, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for being such a uh, critical element in all of this and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, with the end of the book of Revelation, it's interesting how We've come a long way through Scripture and the incredible amount of things that have happened, and yet when we get to the end, we find that in some ways it seems like we're back at the beginning again. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but an interesting exercise is to take the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and to read them side by side with the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and you'll find a, really an astonishing number of parallels. When you put the two chapters side by side, what's the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How, does the la how do the last two chapters begin? There was a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Uh, you have in both stories, you have the first marriage in all of history. And what do you have at the end of the Bible? The last and ultimate marriage between Christ and his church at the end of the Bible. You have precious stones in the Garden of Eden and around that area. And you have precious stones in the New Jerusalem. You have rivers described in Genesis 1 and 2. And you have the river coming out of the throne of God in Revelation 22. You have no sin. I mean, think about it. The only chapters in the Bible where there is no sin are the first two and the last two. I, I'll never forget, this probably goes back to my third grade teacher at Westminster long ago, uh, Mrs. Corrin, Julie Corrin, I remember her, and uh, she, she held up her Bible one day in class. I don't remember much, okay, from third grade, but I do remember this. She held up her Bible one day in class like this, and she said, okay, look at my Bible, and she held up the first part right here. She said, okay, no sin right here, first page. Lots of human depravity, God's patience, God's grace, sending Christ, rescuing us from judgment. That's all going on here. And then she holds up the last page, no sin here. Well, we're entering into eternity. And so the, the first and last two pages of your Bible, no sin, no curse. Communion with God is immediate. There is no mediator. There's no, there's no I mean, I understand Jesus is our ultimate mediator. I know that. But there's no, there's no separation between us and God. God is immediately present with no temple, no tabernacle, no dividing wall, no uh, veil, you know, that goes up in the uh, dividing the holy of holies. And so in the new creation, there is no 
temple in that city, for the Lord God uh, is uh, the temple there, and He is all that we need, and He is all sufficient. So very interesting. I'd I recommend sometime reading those, those four chapters, the first and last two in the Bible, and making some comparisons between them. But it, it is a sense in which we are, we are arriving at the point of what Adam and Eve were intended to do and be all along, but horribly failed to do and be. So you think, what are we going to do in eternity? Well, God gave Adam and Eve a job to do before there was sin. Well, we're going to talk about the gospel and work, Lord willing, on Thursday evening here. Uh, but there was, there was work before there was a fall. And after the fall is over and passed and the curse has been taken away, work has not been taken away. There will be, I don't know what all it will look like in specificity, but there will be glorious things for us to do, responsibilities for us to do. Jesus describes creation, the new creation is, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And then he says, you who've been faithful over five talents will be faithful over five cities. And you who've had 10 will be faithful over 10 cities. And I understand that's a parable, but clearly he's pointing to responsibility in eternity. He's pointing to work to do. And just as Adam and Eve had much work to do without sin, we will again have work to do to glorify God and be his image bearers in a sin-free uh, world where there is no curse, there's no fall, there's no sweat of the brow that you labor to get the, get the bread from the ground and those kinds of things. All that has been taken away, but there will be glorious work to do and worship of the Lord in all that we are able to do. And the whole creation will be renewed. And we'll talk more about that as we, as we go further here. Uh, Greg, could you, uh, could you read for us Revelation 21, verses 9 to the end of the chapter? Yeah, I'd love to. All right, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates." And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city in its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb." By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Papa Fred, some opening comments. Wow. I, I'm, I'm carried away by all the, uh, the symbolism. Uh, we, we talk sometimes about Jews and Gentiles. We've got, we've got the Jews included here. We've got, uh, had a great high wall on verse, uh, verse 12 with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. But also then down in uh, 14, we, uh, we see in the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So that's both Jew and Gentile. That's the new heaven and the new earth and the inclusion uh, of both. Uh, Greg uh, just read the, um, the jewels uh, with, the, with the, the first jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, and so on. This comes from, really, Exodus. This was the effort that the high priest wore. Uh, these stones are the very same stones. Now, you, because of Bible translation, sometimes you get a different stone. You say, oh, that, I, I better take the NIV or ESV or something like that. But it's, it, that's what it's intended to mean. So there is this inclusion of the people of God, the bride of Christ. Yeah, I think here you're, you're seeing so clearly that there is only one people of God yes. in the Bible. You have the 12 tribes of Israel, and you have the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Who does that represent? All the saints of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, all the saints of the New Testament, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and it's one, it's one city, it's one bride. And so God has one bride, His true people, the true sons and daughters of Abraham. He has one people throughout all the Bible, and ultimately all of us find our oneness with, with Christ through our union with Him. It's, it's through trusting Him and having faith in Him. Uh, Greg? Yeah, going off of the unity of the people of God, it's not like this is something that is finally here. This is expressive, like you were saying, of what has been the case all along. Um, and the imagery goes back and forth in terms of how we think about the makeup of God's people. Um, you know, from one angle, you know, the church is really the, the end times Israel exalted and the nation streaming into it. Um, and so it's like we, we are coming into Jerusalem. We're coming in up to the house of the mountain of the house of the Lord to seek his law, to seek him. That's what the Old Testament promised. Um, but also, you know, from the, the angle of the, of the New Testament, we are the bride of Christ. We are, um, you know, the church of Christ and all of that. And the New Testament goes back and forth with these metaphors. From one instance, you know, it, it's the new people of God. And from the, the other angle, it's the Gentiles incorporated into Israel. Um, but it's, it's not one or the other or separated in time. It's both at the same time reflected in its most perfect form here. Um, God doesn't see this distinction with Israel as, you know, one people and the church as another people. It's, it's a unity that was intended all along. I mean, even in God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you know, God was calling Abraham and doing everything he was going to do through Abraham and then Israel to bring blessing back to the, all the nations of the world. 
I mean, that's the ultimate outcome of God's promise to Abraham is the blessing of the nations. And we see that blessing taking place in, in, the, the, in the church and then in its consummated like final form here in the New Jerusalem, you know, Jew and Gentile together drawing on what Fred said, you know, we're, we are like the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies with that, that ephod on with the jewels and all of that. Like the, all of the people of God have equal access together to God. They are the dwelling place of God. Um, and so the, the picture here of the unity of God's people is not a new thing. It's, it's, it's the, the glorified form of it, but it's what we have in the church now. Yeah, let, let me say a word. Again, this is debatable amongst Christians, and it, it's something we can at times agree to disagree on. But my, my, my uh, inclination here is to not take all the language of this chapter at face value literally, just like we haven't been with much of Revelation. So our, our understanding is that Revelation is largely symbolic, being written as apocalyptic literature, like the second half of Daniel, highly symbolic language. I don't think that we're describing here a city that is literally 1,300 miles tall and 1,300 miles wide. That's what 12,000 stadia refers to. Are we talking about a, a city that's literally 1,300 miles tall? I mean, imagine getting on the elevator in that city. So it'd take quite a while to get to the top of that place. And I'm not trying to be silly, but you've got 1,300 miles wide, 1,300 miles deep, 1,300 miles tall, a perfect cube made of gold. I doubt that's referring to the literal dimensions of the future city. I think it's describing, again, God's renewed world using the language of the Holy of Holies, which mm -hmm. we've described. The only other cube in the Bible is the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament in Solomon's temple where God immediately dwells with his people. And he, he, here we're hearing that the New Jerusalem is, at least symbolically speaking, it's a perfect cube. It's exactly the same as a Holy of Holies. God is everywhere present in that reality. Uh, thoughts on that? And it's also massive. Yes. That's, I think that's what the symbolism is supposed It's about to. as wide as the Roman Empire was at the time. Well, that's right. Or, or the Median Empire, for example, right. from Greece all the way to India. Massive. 5,000 some odd miles long. Yeah. I mean, there's no cities that big. No. I mean, there's just not. No city is as big as what we're looking at here. And I think that's the point. It's like the, the Old Testament promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You know, like... It's, it's all fulfilled right here um, in, in this city, which defies all previous cities, like all previous dimensions, all previous sizes, all previous expectations. Um, I mean, you think about the, uh, the size of the walls here. It's 144 cubits, which um, is about, what's it say? Cube was 18. Um, it doesn't actually have that in there. That's frustrating. Um, but 144 <laughs> cubits. Usually your Bible translations have, you know, they have the stadia, but they don't have that one. Um, but it's, it's, you know, an impregnable wall. Cities never had walls this thick. They never had walls this high. Um, and what, is, what does that communicate beyond the, the shape of it? Um, and Fred's, Fred's alluded to this uh, before, it, it, the absolute security of those who dwell in this city. Like evil cannot touch God's people. It's, it cannot even hope to, to break in. And I mean, obviously we know, you know, all sinners, Satan, beast, the Antichrist, the, the false prophet, they're all in the lake of fire, so they're, they're gone. But it's like the, the John here is, is making sure we understand nothing can, can penetrate into this and ruin what's there. You know, that's always, always the, the worry is, is the wall high enough? Is the wall thick enough? Can we withstand a siege? Um, nothing could come against this. 
nothing could come against this city. And, and the point of the, the size and the thickness of the walls and, and all of that, and the fact that its gates are always open, they're never shut. You know, as Fred said before, you know, cities shut their gates at night because of danger, because of potential enemies. You don't want to have your gates open uh, during the night. You only open them during the day when you can see well. There's no night. This is the most secure place you can ever imagine. Nothing can come in to spoil it, to corrupt it, to ruin it, to dim its light. Um, and I mean, like descriptive phrases like start to, to fail, honestly, when we try to, to say, how secure is this? It's the, the securest, 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 securest place you can imagine. And then like multiply it times 10,000. And that's not still not good enough. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Papa? There's also, uh, I don't know if you said this, there's no night. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the, 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 uh, the lamb is the light. The God is the light. There's no night. Uh, night, uh, we took a trip one time to, to Europe, and it was a medieval city, and they had a night watchman presentation. And, and gosh, it, I mean, that was a really a responsible job because the night watchman had to go around looking for the bad guys because when the sun went down, bad things happened. The, the good people went inside where it was safe, but the night watchman's job was to warn of fire, warn of an enemy approaching, warn of any, uh, you know, mischief going on and that kind of thing. So he was kind of like the law and order kind of guy. The gates will all be open. There'll be no night. You can't go run hide. There won't be any need to go run hide because we were, like you mentioned, uh, Greg, the, the word tabernacle. We're going to be tabernacling with, with God. I mean, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, face to face. And, you know, I think this is the, 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 the Old Testament tabernacle at the time of Moses was a precursor, of course, obviously of this. You know, the, the cube, the holy of holies, the, the traveling, the moving, the mobile tabernacle. tabernacle. But God dwelt there uh, symbolic. I mean, he was there, but now he's going to be with us. We're going right. to be face-to-face, -face, and that's incredible. Yes. I want to I wanna, tell me what you guys think of this. This is something I, I started thinking about this morning. Um, it's something I need to trace out a little more before I say absolutely. But I noticed it says in uh, 21, um, it mentions... In uh, verse 25, there will be no night there. And then again in um, chapter 22, verse 5, it says, and night will be no more. So not only, you know, if it's, if it's not night, does that mean like there's no enemy that can successfully sneak up? But you think about in the Bible how much evil is done in darkness. Um, you know, we're no longer children of the night. We're children of light. We're, you know, we've come out of darkness into light. You know, Proverbs and other places talks about so much of what evil man does in the darkness. There, there's not going to be a place for evil to fester. I hadn't really thought about it in that, that way before when it talks about there's no night. There, there's nowhere for anyone to conspire and plan to try to ruin God's people or anything like that. So, you know, we're always like, you know, people try to hide when they have evil designs and stuff like that. And you're always like, what, what's going on that I don't know about, that I can't see? there's not going to be anywhere for folks to do that. I mean, obviously, there's not going to be any folks to do it, but there's not going to be any place for that to be done. And again, I think it's just reinforcing um, how great this is going to be. Like, there will be, there will be no fear. Like, we won't be wondering, you know, who's out there plotting to try to mess this up. There's nowhere for them to do it, and there's no one to do it. And it's like, 
It, the repetition of the idea that no one, no how um, is going to be able to enter in and mess this up. Like, I, I think we need to linger on that just to, to, to encourage ourselves with the fact that when we get this, not only is it secure, but it's absolutely secure forever. Yeah, I, this, when Kelly and I were not married yet, I think it, was the, it may have been the last time I actually spent the night at my parents' house. I remember going back on a, I hadn't been living there, but I went back to stay the night there one night. And, um, you know, they've lived at the same, in the same home for over 30 years in Watkinsville. It's the home I basically grew up in. So I, I went back there. I stayed that night in the house. And uh, I, this is the weirdest thing. I, I have this distinct memory of locking, making sure that the door was locked coming in from the garage. And the garage doesn't shut. It's like a carport. There's no closing garage. So we, we, I'm... My parents have a certain way of you lock the door and you put the key somewhere. So you have to have the key to get out the door. And I remember, I remember having a distinct thought, like, almost like, what's the point? Like, you know, how dangerous is it? You know, we've never had anything happen in 30 years. I had that distinct thought, and I went to bed. Well, the next morning I woke up, and I left the house, and that afternoon I get a phone call that our house had been broken into. My parents' house had been broken into the very next day. And so I, get, I come to my parents' house, and the Oconee Sheriff is there, and people had come to that very door I locked the night before. They had busted through the door using some kind of equipment. They had hit the door really hard, busted it open. They'd come in. They'd taken some money I had sitting in the living room, and they took that, and they flipped a bunch of stuff over. All the closets were ripped apart. My mom's jewelry had been taken, and you know, all kinds of stuff. You can imagine what a house looks like wow. after it's been broken in. So my mom gets back to the house first, and she sees the door has been busted open, and she, she doesn't know what to do. So she calls my dad. My dad comes there, and I think one of them goes into the house first, which I don't know. That was a scary experience probably. It's like, is anyone still in there? And then they, they, the police show up. Well, all that to say... Uh, that's just a vivid memory for me, but so many things in our life come down to this thought of what if something really bad happens with our kids, with our friends, with our family? I mean, how, how many times, I mean, I, as a parent, I almost feel like it's, it's crazy how much you're aware of with little children. Like, are they breathing? Are they, how are they doing after their nap? Are they going to, are they, wait, like, they don't wake up right away. Is everything okay? You got it's like crazy moments where you're just, you're always thinking, how can I protect them? How can I care for them? How can I help them come to know the Lord? And the thought, it's, it's almost, it's so built into how we live. Like, like it, it, Hebrews 2 says, we're slaves to the fear of death until Jesus sets us free. Even if people don't talk about death, they're thinking about how to avoid it. That's what, like, nothing wrong with like, like eating healthy and exercising, all these things, but some, some, sometimes people do that in an effort to try to avoid death. Like, I'm just going to do all these things, and I'm going to make sure the seatbelt's on, I'm going to make sure the tires are right, and the engine's right, and everything's going to be fine, we're not going to have a car accident. But so much of our life is enslaved to anxiety and fear of all these things that could go wrong. And, and as a parent, it just exponentially goes up for me. I just, it's unbelievable. Well, just imagine, there's a time coming where all of that is going to be gone forever. You will never have an anxious thought again. You will never have a depressed thought again. You will never have a thought, well, what are they thinking? Or what do they really believe? Or does God really love me? Or am I truly saved? All that stuff will be completely eradicated because faith will have become sight. It will be right in front of you. And there will be no longer a fear of safety issues, no longer fear of security issues, no longer fear of what if, what if, what if. It will all be right in front of us to look at. And there will be complete and utter confidence in the way that you know you're in this room right now. You will know that we are there. Like, it's true. We've been rescued. We are with God. There is nothing to be afraid of. The, the, the walls and the gates are open 24-7 because no, no enemy is going to come into the wall. There, there's none of that anymore. It just the, the alleviation, I think, will be so unimaginable because we live with it all the time that to actually have that taken off of us 
we will not even understand how to act. I think it would be overwhelming to think, wow, like it's over. The battle has been finished. We are in his presence. We have nothing but joy to look forward to, ever-expanding knowledge of God, as, as many people have argued. You know, we're, we're not going to get to heaven and be omniscient. I don't know. How, sometimes we think that way. Like, the second we die, we know everything. Where no. does it say that in the Bible? It never says we're going to know everything. It, 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 we, we, how, you know, Jonathan Edwards had this quote where he said, how can an infinite God be fully known ever by finite creatures? And what he means by that is, I think he's right, we are going to have an ever-expanding knowledge of the, of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, his, his love, you know, the breadth, width, height, and depth of the love of Christ, that is what? Beyond knowledge? We're never going to fully grasp it, but we're going to be ever-expansive in our knowledge of His love, His holiness, His grace, His sovereignty, His goodness, His power. We will, like, every day will be a fresh experience and a newer and broader understanding of who the triune God is, and we will be more amazed by our salvation more amazed by our forgiveness, more amazed by the righteousness we have in Christ. Like, it's never going to get boring. It's going to be just the opposite. It's, it's like a kid the night before Christmas where there's so much to anticipate, but we know that it's never going to wear off like that toy that you got as a kid that got boring after about three days. It's going to be ever-expansive uh, delight in, in the fellowship that we have uh, with God, which is just an uh, amazing thing to think about. One other other illusion that's provoked me a little bit, it's, uh, we read it actually in the first part of, of 21, and it said, actually in the first verse, and the sea was no more. And our, our, the commentary, one of the commentaries that we're using, uh, Beale addresses that. And, you know, I don't know what that really means, because uh, we, we also know there's a river of life. Uh, I, I think there's going to be water. But he said the sea, and there was, and the sea was no more. But, but think about this, verses like, he, he says in his commentary, it's the origin of cosmic evil. The beast in Daniel came out of the sea. The beast in Revelation 13 came out of the sea. The unbelieving rebellious nations who caused tribulation for God's people came out of the sea. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters uh, toss up mire and dirt. It also uh, signifies the place of the dead. Mm. Uh, in, in verse, uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 13 of Revelation. It's the main arena in which the world's idolatrous trade takes place, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for none buys their cargo. Uh, and lastly, a literal body of water, part of the old creation, or the sea. Uh, you know, the sea, if you really think about it, the oceans make up the uh, largest part of the, of the planet. And, and they also separate us. Um, they separate us from one another. There will be no separation in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know, again, how, you, how it's going to lay out, but that we will not be separated from one another. So that's just another illusion I wanted to, that has provoked me a little bit. Something else to consider here um, is, you know, take, drawing off of all that we've been saying, is there's not going to be sin. Um, and there's not going to be sin in us. Um, and so think about how much we want to please the Lord and how, if we're honest, how much we know we are our biggest enemy to pleasing the Lord. Uh, we are our own worst enemy when it comes to becoming like Jesus. We, like I am my own worst enemy 
when it comes to loving my family the way I'm supposed to, you know, striving for excellence in everything that God puts before me. I am my own worst enemy. Um, you know, we are filled up with all kinds of ungodly desires, ungodly cravings for, for any number of things. Um, and in this new creation, in the presence of God, we're not going to have sin. Like there's going to be, I mean, if, if, you know, work hard at this, uh, thinking about this, there's not going to be even the possibility for us to sin. Like no contrary desires, no cravings for wicked things that we have to constantly fight day in and day out. There will be none of that. I mean, think about, we, we, we go through moments where we feel like, you know, where we get a taste of that and we're like, okay, I've overcome sin, you know, this at least right now, I don't feel temptation. I feel like I can focus totally on the Lord. I can focus totally on what I need to do. And it's like those moments are at best fleeting because sin still indwells us. And there's not going to be any sin to, to wrestle with anymore. It's going to be gone. There's not going to be Romans 8, 12 will become irrelevant, right? 12 through 13, where it says, you know, be killing sin, basically, or sin's going to be killing you. There's not going to be any more mortification of the flesh because our flesh won't have any sin to mortify. Um, and so just imagine every day being able to focus on God, loving others with a perfectly pure heart, um, a, a perfectly pure mind, never distracted, never weighed down, never corrupted, um, you know, because even in our best moments, it's like we know this is going to end, like the thoughts are going to come in eventually that, that spoil this. There's not, not going to be that. And I mean, like it, it's hard to even fathom an existence without any kind of sinful impulse. But also thinking, um, you, you mentioned about no anxiety. And I want to tie this to the fact that there's no night. Um, I know like folks who struggle with depression, a lot of times, you know, whether that's, you know, just their life or like ladies who put, go dealing with postpartum, um, like the one thing you dread is when the sun goes down. It's like the sun going down just amplifies the anxiety. It amplifies the struggle. With no night and no sin, there's nothing to dread. I mean, just, just think about that, how, how quickly we, we fear, you know, the, the coming of the night and the, the bring, you know, we want the day to come. There's not going to be any of that. And so, like, I think if, if you struggle in that way, like, take heart. Like, there's not going to be that struggle anymore. It's going to be gone. There will never be, man, the sun's about to go down. I'm about to get depressed again. It's gone. It's absolutely gone. Um, and so, like, the, the sheer amount of joy that is consistent, um, security, stabil inner stability, oh, my goodness, um, personality-wise and all of that, like, we will be as stable as we can be. There'll be no ups and downs. It's only up forever. Like, it's just, it's amazing to think about. Well, just, just kind of continue with what you're saying. Um, it, what is it? Is it Scrooge in a, in a Christmas Carol? Is that what it's called? He's, remember, he's looking in through the window at the warm home, and he's seeing this family in there, and he's looking through the cold window, and he's outside. And so often in life, it can feel like we're on the outside of things, you know, like, when you're a kid, it might be you don't get invited to the party, and you just go, oh, man, you know, it's just this heart-crushing thing, because there, there's this great event going on, and I'm not part of it. I'm outside of it. As adults, it looks a little different, but there's still this, there's still this like C.S. Lewis called it, the desire for the inner ring. 
where we always kind of want to be on the inside of everything. Like we want to be in the know. We want to be in the middle of, of what's really happening and relevant. And so much of our life is not there. We, we, we're often not in the, the, the know. We're not often in the place of power or the place of whatever it is that we want to be in. And it can be a, an area of real longing for us. And it can even be a sin area, an area of idolatry. But in the new creation, you're not going to be outside of what's happening. You're going to be in the middle of what's going on. You're going to be in the midst of God's purposes and God's plan. You're going to be in the midst of his presence with all of his people. No longer ever on the outside, looking in like Scrooge through the window. We're going to be inside, in the warmth of that home, inside, in the midst of that family reunion that never is going to come to an end. So all those fears of like, well, I'm missing out. Like just a practical point of application. No matter what age you are, we all struggle with a desire to be included in some way. It may look different as you're older, but we all want to be included. We don't want to be kicked out, excluded, forgotten, you know, whatever it may be. Just fight when you're struggling with, why was I not part of this? Why was I not included, invited? Fight it by saying, Ephesians 1, God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, and He has an eternal inheritance for me where I am invited, and I'm actually not just invited, I've been chosen by God for the only party that actually matters. This is the prodigal's party, where you go into the home with the father, he kills the fattened calf, and that party never actually comes to an end. You, if you know Christ, you're invited, you're included in that party. Whatever else you miss out on in this life is like husks and ashes compared to what you actually are going to be included in forever. Hell is often described as missing out on the feast. Uh, in, in, in Matthew, Jesus, Matthew 8, he says, many will come from east and west and will sit down at the table. This is a feasting celebration with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom, the, the, the Jewish people in this case who had rejected Christ, will be cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the door is in, in a sense locked. So that idea of included or excluded is the idea of, of, of eternity in the new creation versus hell. And none of this sounds boring. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody mentioned that. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, and that's been you know, some of the questions. Like we, I listened to Randy Alcorn oh, yeah. in your recommendation. Uh, you know, I wonder about some of those things, but boring is not something I think we're going to have to worry about mm -mm. at all. Well, let's jump into the last chapters before we run out of time here. Papa, can you read for us the first, um, why don't you just, can you read the whole chapter? I'll let's let's, let's read the whole to. thing. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This back to the garden, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and through the middle of the strait of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and there will be no need for light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. 
worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. 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 Papa, let me, let me ask you, I haven't planned to ask you this, but I, I just want to ask you this. We, we give you a lot of grief for, for, for Papa's age. We talk about him being childhood friends with Martin Luther, things like that, okay? We give Papa Fred a lot of grief. But, but in all seriousness, we've talked about this in, 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 in recent months. Uh, as the Lord has given you just a rich and full life in so many ways, I know that, because we've talked about this, I know that you think about eternity, and any of us could enter eternity at any moment, but as you get older and the Lord has given you uh, just a, a wonderful life of ministry, how do you think and feel as you think about eternity on the, on the, on the future horizon? How do you prepare? What are, what are some of your thoughts in that regard? Well, I think I've even mentioned this to, to you guys, but um, it just seems like I'd say within the last couple of years, I've really lost a lot of uh, close friends uh, near and around, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, uh, my age. And it really has given me... Uh, something to think about and of course most most recently John Deans as we discussed who we were involved with ministry uh, for a number of years together and um, I, I think it's and, and of course Revelation has really uh, it is the consummation the ultimate consummation these last two chapters uh, for God's purposes on with his people us his church and, 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 and it's made me want this. It's made me hunger and long for this. Now, I'm not unhappy here. I'm, I'm not unhappy. Uh, I'm, I'm happier. I'm, I'm not saying this. You didn't pay me to say this, but uh, I, I'm happy at North Avenue than I've ever been in any place, any church body uh, in my life. Uh, so I don't want to leave. But, you know, I, but the, there's an imperative to preaching the gospel, I think. And, and, and that's what I think uh, uh, I, I feel compelled to do until my dying breath. If, if, a, if a genuine believer said that if they were being honest, they still have a fear of death, that genuine Christian, they trust the Lord, but there's still this, I mean, we, we all have a natural fear of death, obviously, but 
maybe even a, a paralyzing fear of death. What, what, what could you say to encourage someone as they anticipate eternity? I've heard it said that I, I don't fear death, but I fear the process, right. you know, whatever process I have to go through to die. But I would say that uh, all you have to do is to sit down and read Daniel as we have, read Revelation as we had, as we have. And I, I think the fear goes away. I think, I think it's exciting to contemplate. Uh, I actually do. And, and I, I'm not saying that to, for any other reason except that's how my heart feels. Uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by these words. Uh, I'm encouraged by this last, cha last chapter. How many times did he said, come, come, mm. come? I mean, he, he means come, literally. And, 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 and ultimately, that's what I want to do mm. to his glory. No, that's wonderful. Greg, anything else, practically speaking, for, for Christians who are trying to get the mindset on what our future holds in Christ? Um, practical, like, for right now? Yeah, maybe um, in, in light of eternity right now. I mean, the Bible talks about in several places that longing for the return of Christ, longing to see Christ, it has a purifying effect right now. I think mm. it's somewhere in First yeah. John, like, and this is something I've thought about more, and in light of Revelation and what God has promised is coming, um, if you find that verse, First John, all right, yeah, First John 3, 1 through 3, I mean, li listen to this. This is, you know, meditating on the future, what practical application does it have? It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him, in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so a practical benefit of meditating on the future of what God is going to do and bring is it has an incredible purifying effect on us now. You know, we talk about um, replacing, you know, a sinful affection with a godly affection. How do we overcome desire for sin? Let's nurture a desire for God. One of the most powerful weapons we have in our arsenal as Christians is God's promise of the future. If we believe this, then when we are struggling with sin, to, to give in to temptation, to think evil thoughts, to do wicked deeds, to say hurtful things, and we know it's wrong, but how do I overcome that desire? Because sometimes it is so strong to just yield to sin. Preach this, because this is what's coming. And God, the Holy Spirit, will use his word. It is a sword, and he will slice through the power of sin in that moment and refresh us and renew us with the right perspective and the right mindset because this is what awaits me when I say no to sin. This is what's on the other side of clinging to Christ. This, everything that we've been saying. And so meditating on the future gives us an incredible power in the present to overcome sin, to... to just live a life of basic obedience because we know this is where it's going to go. Like there's no doubt God is going to bring this for his people. And so we can put up with a little hardship right now because we know this is what's going to be our forever.
Yeah, we, we, there is no worldview that has a better end to the story than our worldview. Mm-hmm. When you hear, and I, I bring up something this awful, but when you hear these, you know, these shootings that happen, and you, you read about the shooter and what, what they believed and what they did, not always, but very frequently, the, the shooter had no understanding of life after death. It was just, just this futile, purposeless existence, and so might as well go out in, in this way and go out in a shooting of some kind. We have something glorious in our future to look forward to that grounds everything in our present. It gives meaning and purpose to right now because what we are headed to to is secure and real and true and wonderful. And so uh, I think that it's a great testimony to the truth of of the Christian faith and to its superiority, not just it's it's both true and better than the alternatives. When we can live somewhat consistently with what we say we believe about this, it shows people that we have a hope that the world doesn't have. We have something that goes beyond what's accessible right in front of us or the pleasures of the moment. We have something far better in the heavens. And... I think when that shows itself in a, in a church, uh, it's a wonderful testimony to, to, to the unbelieving world. And I've seen this in, in the testimony of, of uh, a lot of times uh, 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 just witnessing some older saints in their latter days of their life. You know, and that's, they've, they've fought the good fight, and they're finishing the race, and they've, they've kept the faith. And, and that's great security uh, for, uh, well, for all of us. It, it is a fight, and that's, that's a word I like to use. I mean, it, it, it's a fight. It's a fight sometimes to get up in the morning and to, uh, to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm, I don't feel good or I'm, I'm, I'm a little dry spirit. But go to the Word. I mean, I think John Piper's had probably theologically the greatest influence on my life. And, and from time to time in his uh, daily devotionals, he'll, he throws out these verses. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And, uh, you know, those types of things. We, we need to have an arsenal of those encouragement verses so that when we, do, uh, when we do feel a little down or a little gray, that, you know, it, may, it, just, it just changes your whole perspective. It's like a sunrise. It's mm-hmm. like that light that never dims, that never goes out. And it's there for the taking. It's there in this, in this book here and all, 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 all the pages in between. We've got all the pages in between, not just the first two and the last two chapters. So go for it. Let me, uh, let me just read a couple verses one more time, and then uh, I'm going to ask Papa to pray for us. Uh, let me read uh, 17 again, and then I'll read the very end. 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father God, um, I was was looking at chapter 1, or excuse me, uh, 21, uh, verse 4, as a prelude to... uh, to praying even. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Um, Mark mentioned fear of death. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Um, just like Greg was mentioning, there, there'll be no more sin. I, I, I just can't imagine that. That That's probably the biggest struggle, the biggest fight that any of us have in, in this life here on earth is to struggle with our own indwelling 
sin and to think that you're going to take it away, that it's going to be gone. You've already taken it away through the death, burial, and resurrection of our dear Lord Jesus, but you're going to take it away and give us as a replacement a tabernacle experience with our maker, with our creator. At the great wedding supper of the Lamb, we'll be gathered in, in by the millions and millions and upon millions and to worship. And there won't be any boredom, any tears, any sadness, any, any suffering, any pain. And so, Lord, thank you for this fitting um, conclusion to your, to your Bible, to your, your word to us. And I just ask that, uh, that, uh, that we all just feast, as Jerry likes to say, feast on these words and, and, and take Romans 8 for reality. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. To you be the glory. Amen. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Well, just remember that starting next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin our cultural series, which we're calling Against the Culture, For the Culture, and uh, we're going to spend some time sort of setting that up a little bit, talking about Christian worldview, things like that, and we'll be getting into some of the issues of the sexual revolution and social justice issues that have been, uh, I think, in many ways um, very, very uh, destructive and harmful. So we're, we're going to try to talk, talk through some of those things and explain what the Bible teaches uh, in opposition to some of those. Thank you all.